You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Matthew 13. Go in your Bibles to Matthew 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um... So this fall, uh, let me say, so let me, by way of just sort of orienting us to the text. So this fall, we're studying parables, and we began our study of parables, these, these parables of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, uh, with Matthew chapter 13. It's the uh, third of five sermons that Matthew records of Jesus, and this sermon, uh, Matthew 13, this third sermon, is... Um, all parables. It's a series of seven parables that Jesus teaches, and they are all related to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, um, most all the parables that we look at, in one way or another, reveal to us something about the kingdom of heaven. In, in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, uh, it's, you have the language, the kingdom of God. It's, we're talking about the same thing. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. And he's doing this in this teaching form called parables. And so it might be helpful for us just to take a moment and remind ourselves sort of what parables are and how they work and why Jesus is employing this teaching method here in Matthew chapter 13. Because, you know, he gets to Matthew 13 and it is very different from how he has taught before. And so, first of all, to know, parable, a parable is an illustration, um, a story. And it's grounded in sort of real-life details, and then those real-life details, they get set alongside this eternal truth. Uh, parable literally means to throw alongside. And so, you have, some have described it this way, it's an, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so these are, these are parables. And, and parables, we found out from Jesus' explanation. So here in Matthew 13, we looked at it the first week, the disciples um, actually asked Jesus, so Jesus, why, why do you teach in parables? Why are you teaching in, in parables? And Jesus tells them I, I, two reasons. One is to reveal truths and at the same time, to conceal those truths. And it's to reveal the truths to those that have ears to hear and eyes to see and, and hearts that are open to, to what the, the king has to say about the kingdom. And, and yet, at the same time, it is, to, it is to conceal. I mean, for those that are disposed to reject the king, for those that are disposed to hear truth and to reject the truth, they will conceal it. Almost always, like I said, these parables are related to teaching us something about the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, 11, back in verse 11, Jesus spoke about these, this kingdom of heaven teaching as, um, as, as uh, secrets or as a mystery. Later, in a few verses later, in, in verse 35, these heavenly truths or kingdom truths, we find out, have been hidden 
since the foundation of the world. But what we are to understand about this, these secret truths, these, this, this mystery of the kingdom, they actually have been hidden in plain sight all along. That these truths were written down in the Old Testament by God's prophets under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And now as Jesus teaches, as he reveals us, he's bringing to light really what was always there. might be helpful to to think about it this way. The the whole of human history, from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 2, all of human history that's recorded, from, from beginning all the way to the picture we see at the end, tells the story of God creating man, male and female, and creates them in his image for the purpose of reigning over creation and reflecting his glory and bringing his divine will to perfect completion. But it doesn't take very long in that story of humanity to get to where mankind turns away from God. In fact, that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Third chapter in, mankind turns away from God. We sin against God. We fall from His glory. And instead of reigning with God in this kingdom over His creation, we fell under the rule of God's enemy. And that enemy is described, in fact, we've seen him described and called by name in Matthew chapter 13, the devil, he's Satan. See, we became slaves of the enemy. He he defeated us. He took the kingdom from our hands and it has ruled us with fear and sin and and death. And so we, we were lost. And not only that, we're lost, but we're also broken. Because in that, we exchanged truth. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We, see, we thought we could rule ourselves without God. So we were ripped from the kingdom, separated from God, we stripped of our identity, and, and so mankind has lived under the rule of an enemy, under the enemy, ever since. And so separated from God, who created us, Stripped of the purpose for which we were created, we're now by nature, we're suspicious, we're manipulative, we're hurtful, we're hateful, we're fearful, we're, we're chasing after the gods of this world. And, and they, they've come, listen, these gods of the world, they, they've come in numerous forms over the centuries. They've uh, looked a lot of different ways throughout the different cultures, but they're still there even today. And we chase after these gods for fulfillment and for control and for happiness and for relief and, and for a sense of, of purpose, for, for those things that we lost, that we were created for, that we can't seem to have a handle on. We are searching after them. And yet we find that the gods of this world leave us more empty than we were before. We live with a longing that we cannot truly satisfy no matter how much stuff we have. And so the mystery, this secret that Jesus is teaching, 
this mystery that's been hidden from, since before the foundation of the world, hidden in plain sight throughout the writings of the Old Testament, is that God has been at work all along to reclaim his kingdom, to ransom his people, to rescue his creation from sin and death, and to once and for all and finally defeat his enemy forever. And so Matthew's gospel is this announcement of God's plan. It's the revealing of God's king. And the king is his son, his eternal son, Jesus. And Jesus stepped out of eternity, out of the heavenlies, into history, into humanity, the invisible God took on flesh and dwelled among us. And so in doing so, Jesus the king, he's announcing the coming of of the kingdom, the rescuing of the world, and how the kingdom of heaven would break into the world and ultimately conquer the enemy and reclaim his creation. That's what we have been looking at. That's what Jesus is teaching. And yet we see in this teaching that the kingdom does not come all at once. And The kingdom does not come like we expect it to. Jesus has been saying, listen, the king does not appear. He doesn't arrive on the scene to conquer his enemies with a sword. He came to conquer hearts, to ransom hearts with the word, with the gospel. That the king didn't come to execute his justice. He, he didn't uh, uh, come. He, he said he came. He, he came to offer his life as a sacrifice. He, he came to be sin. He came to become sin. He came to allow himself to be executed on our behalf. He came to save us from the judgment we deserved by taking our place and being judged in our stead. And then after enduring the cross of shame that was ours and dying the death that we deserved, he rose from the dead. So sin's been paid for. Justice has been satisfied. Death has been conquered. Sinners, the slaves of the enemy, can be ransomed from slavery, redeemed to new life, renewed as sons of God, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and all that you were created for in the image of God as a believer is is being restored and remade as you're being transformed into the likeness of the Son of God, the King, by the power of the Spirit of God that indwells you. So the kingdom has come, and it is coming. It's it's been inaugurated, as the parables have said. It's been sown. It's been planted. And it will be consummated. There will be a a harvest. There will be a judgment. Now, this is what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 13. And he's using seven parables to teach about the kingdom of heaven and how 
it has come into and coming into the world. And the first four parables, the first four of these seven, we've already looked at. They were public teachings. They were teachings he taught to everyone that was there. In fact, we, we find out that the crowd was so big in, in uh, Matthew 13, the very first two verses, it says that same day, Jesus goes out of the house, sat beside the sea, and the great crowds gathered about him so that he had to get into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Jesus is in a boat, whole crowd on the beach, and he's, and he's teaching to the masses. And he teaches the first four parables. The last three parables of the seven parables in Matthew 13 we're going to look at this morning. But these parables, these he's teaching privately to his disciples. Because in verse 36, it says, He left the crowds and went into the house. So his disciples follow him there. So the first four parables, just to remind you, there's reveal something about the kingdom to come. The first one, the sower in the field, if you were here, you remember that. It's the, it's the word of God being planted, sown into the heart. And Jesus warns that both the, the enemy and our, our flesh will try to choke out the good news of God's word. In fact, John, one of the disciples, the gospel writer, will write later in a letter to the churches, he will warn about, you know, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life or the world, the, the flesh and the devil. But then he'll say, listen, but let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let, let the word that comes be planted into your heart and take root and go deep so that it, so that it produces fruit. That's what Jesus says. This is how the kingdom's going to come. And then he tells about the wheat and the tares. So where the word of God is planted in the heart in the first parable, this is the people of God planted in the world. And while the enemy can't uproot the people of God, he can't up, uproot what God has planted, he will try to choke out what is planted by sowing what is counterfeit. By offering what what looks almost right, but is not true. And then Jesus tells the two short little ones, the mustard seed and the leaven, to tell us about the plan of God planted by his gospel into history. It's needed, you know, needed into the history of humanity, history of this world, like leaven though seemingly insignificant and small, says it'll grow into a shelter for many. It'll grow into a feast for the multitudes. So we've been learning about the kingdom. And then these last three parables, these private parables to the disciples. He's going to give them in quick order. They're, they're short. They're punchy. And yet they have powerful imagery. The three parables are, there's one about a hidden treasure, there's one about a pearl of great value, and then there's one about a net thrown into the sea. So if you look with me, I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to read in Matthew 13, beginning verse 44, and I'll read through these three parables. Matthew records Jesus saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then in verse 51, to sum it up, he turns to the disciples, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. Well, the first two parables, the, the treasure and the pearl, they're, they're about something being found. And, and then this last tre- uh, parable, the parable of the net being thrown into the sea, it's about, it's about something being gathered. So let's look at the first one, this, this hidden treasure in verse 44. Short, it's sweet. And the history is this. There were, there were no banking institutions back in the day. And so if you had valuables where you put them, for safekeeping is that you buried them in the ground. And so it wasn't uncommon sometimes. These valuables would be buried, and then they would be lost to history. An enemy would come. They would um, seize what's yours. They would take your land. They would kick you out. They might end your life. Time passes. And the place gets run down, and then it's just a field, just an ordinary field, and there's no apparent value to it. And in this parable, there's a worker, and he's working the field. So he's working the field, he's doing his thing, and he finds the treasure. It's been there all along, and it, but it's been what was hidden has now been revealed, and he. He sees it for what it's worth. And so, at this point, you've got to know, the story's not about the morals or the ethics of, of the situation. It's not as though the, you know, it's not trying to ask or answer the question, should the worker now go to the guy who owns the thing and say, hey, listen, I found this treasure, Now I'll tell you where it is if you cut me in for half of it. It's not that kind of, it's not asking that question. In the old Jewish law, you know, in the, in the, in the land, you know, finders, keepers was the way that it goes. But you couldn't take it, couldn't take the treasure if you didn't own the property. So what he does is he sells everything he has, everything else that he has, to buy the land so that now it's his. He sacrifices everything to buy the field so that he can end up with a treasure worth far more than the sacrifice. So how are we to understand this? Who's the worker? And what's the treasure? 
Well, let's look at the next parable, the pearl of great value. In the first parable, the worker, he wasn't searching for anything. He was just doing his thing, and he accidentally stumbles upon the treasure, right? But in this parable, the, the, it's, a, it's, a different, it's a different kind of thing. What you have is you have a pearl merchant, or a merchant of fine pearls is the way the text says it. His job is to search for fine pearls. He's, he's looking for treasure, isn't he? What he can buy low and sell high. But something unexpected does happen to him. So he, he comes across a pearl like he's never seen before. I mean, a once-in-a-lifetime pearl, a pearl of great price, a pearl of great value. And, and evidently, the one who has this pearl, he knows the worth of it as well, and the merchant, he does too. And so he knows pearls. He's been, he's been uh, you know, dealing in them all of his life, and he's seen a lot of pearls come and a lot of pearls go, and he's not seen anything in all of his life like this. This is it. It's the pearl to end all pearls. So this man sells everything. I mean, he, he's a rich man, and he liquidates all his holdings. He, he has, a, has a fire sale. He gets rid of everything that he owns. And then he took all of that. He took everything and goes and buys the one pearl, the, the crown jewel, the, the one of a kind. And, and the search is over. No longer a merchant. He's a, he's a pearl owner. He owns the pearl. He, he exchanged Everything in his life that was previously valuable, that, that made him wealthy, so that he could possess what was ultimately of the greatest value. I mean, if you think about it, in some ways, he has nothing and he has everything when he has the pearl. So how are we to understand this? Who's the merchant? What's the pearl of such great value? You know, when we were looking at the uh, first couple of parables, um, Jesus taught the soils and the uh, field, uh, or soils and the seed, the field and the seeds, and, and then at the end of that, he tells the disciples, and so, you know, this is how parables go, this is what parables are, so let me go ahead and give you the interpretation of it. So the disciples listen to the interpretation as Jesus begins to tell them about each of the soils and what that means and uh, you know, the, the value of the good soil and what, what the seed does inside of the good soil. And so, thank you, yeah, all right, we got that. So then he tells them the parable about the wheat and the tares. First thing they do when they get alone with Jesus is they say, probably at great risk, mind you, because remember Jesus had said, hey, listen, I'm telling these parables, and if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, then you'll understand. 
And so I'm sure the disciples, as they get alone with Jesus, feel this great risk of saying to Jesus, as they're about to ask him, what in the world do you mean by the wheat and the tares? It probably goes something like this. Now, Jesus, it's not that we don't understand. I mean, because, I mean, obviously we have eyes to see and ears to hear. I mean, we're disciples. But we were just wondering what, you, what it meant to you. I mean, what would you think it meant? And so we're helped out with the wheat and the tares. But we're kind of left on our own here with the treasure and the pearl, aren't we? In fact, Jesus will ask him a little later, don't you understand? And they look at him. Absolutely we do. We got you. I think there is an aspect of these two parables. Different, yet similar. That, that draws us in, that, that, that draws us to the value of a thing found. Right? So the treasure, the, 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 the pearl, but both are, actually both are found unexpectedly. One's found by accident, the other's found by, by searching for fine pearls, never believing they'd come across the, the, the one and only chance of a lifetime pearl. And I think it's reasonable to conclude that the, that the treasure and the pearl, they, 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 they draw our minds to the value of the kingdom, the, the value of the king. I mean, Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus, the ultimate treasure, the, the most valuable of pearls. And, and in this, what we see each of the men, the, the worker and the merchant. So upon realizing what they found, they make radical decisions to adjust their life to possess the treasure. I mean, they sell everything. I mean, next to the treasure that they've discovered, I mean, everything else is expendable. It, it, everything else is for sale. It's no longer important. It, it no longer matters. The treasure... The treasure found eclipses everything else they've ever known or ever wanted. What well, One writer says it this way. says they, they assess the value of the treasure with their minds. Secondly, they, they feel the value in their hearts. And thirdly, they, they live out the value by the way in which they live their lives. So there's a sense in, in which we, we hear this and we, we understand. That there's a truth here, that, that Jesus is more valuable than anything we could ever have or want in this life. And, and we, we would know it with our minds value it with our hearts and, and live it out in our lives. And 
we'd sell everything and follow him, and, and we'd leave everything and we'd follow him, and we'd lose everything to gain him, and that we would know him and, and live for him and, and love him as our treasure. And in that, we would sacrifice all we have to gain him. We feel that. If only it were that easy, huh? I mean, if only what was so clear in our minds translated to the truth of our hearts. Let, let me say this. I, I don't think it's, it's... It's not because we don't want this to be our reality. I think there are a lot of people that do. I mean, the truth of God resonates deep inside of us. I mean, listen, even though Genesis 3 says, listen, we walked away from God. We wanted to be our own gods. We rebelled against God. We fell into sin and fell from His glory. We're still created in the image of God. Those echoes of what He created us to be, we still hear the truth of God resonate deep inside of us. And we... We hear it, and, we, and there's a part of it. We long for that. We know the value of the treasure. I mean, or at least we want to. We get it. Israel did. And you read the Old Testament, oh, I mean, over page after page after page. I mean, they made this pledge over and over. I mean, they would put their grumbling away and they pledged their hearts and minds and strengths to God. But it wasn't long until they didn't. Then they'd put their idols away. Their bales and their astroths. And... Until they didn't. They'd offer their sacrifices and humility until they didn't. Page after page. And see, the surprising thing about the history of humanity, the history of God's people, is not their faithlessness towards God. See, that doesn't surprise us because it's the history we live The surprising thing. I, I, hope, I hope it still takes your breath away when you come across it in the pages of Scripture. That when you read it, that it causes you to to bow in humility. See, the surprising thing is not our unfaithfulness. The surprising thing is God's enduring and unending and unflinching and unchanging faithfulness and love and care and desire for His people. You see, the, the truth of the 
treasure and the pearl are this. We will never fully understand the value of the treasure of the gospel of Jesus until we understand that it is Jesus who is the worker in the field and the merchant who finds the pearl. So we'll never understand the great value of the treasure and the sacrifice it's worth until we understand that for Jesus, we were the treasure and the sacrifice was His. That He bought the field. He gave up everything, everything to possess the pearl. With joy, the text says, he sacrificed everything. He even gave his life. He died on your cross. He became your sin. He suffered your death so you could become his own. He gave all that he is so that you could become his. You're the treasure. You're the pearl of great value. See, and until we come to grips, until you in your heart, until you deep inside come to grips with the love of Christ, the sacrifice of your King, the grace of your God, and are overwhelmed by the fact that you are the treasure, you're the treasure. That Jesus, the name above all names, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God. Until you know the treasure that that is, that your, that your heart affection, a heart affection so strong that it eclipses all lesser affections. You can set aside all other affections so that your full affection can take hold and grasp the treasure of Jesus. You can't fully know until you understand that you're the treasure that was sacrificed for. You're the treasure that cost everything to possess. You're the affection of the Savior. He gave up everything to have you. And until you realize what it cost him to have you, you won't fully know what it is to treasure him. See, when you, when you get a hold of that, you won't ask questions like, okay, well, so just, um, so just tell me what I have to do to be a Christian. Just, I mean, what do I need to do? What, what do I need to give up? What do I need to start doing? It, it, you, you realize this isn't something I add to my already life. When you get a hold of that, when you get a hold of that Jesus is the merchant, He's the worker, He gave up everything because you're the treasure. When that gets a hold of you, when that gets into your heart and begins to take root and bear fruit, then you say, oh, I don't want any other affections. I don't want anything to compete with my affection for the treasure. Then you begin to see Jesus as the great treasure and as the great 
only then do you. It is not because of what you do. It is not because of what you sacrifice. It is not because of what you can give up. It is being overwhelmed by what Jesus has done. This is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the, he moves from there. He tells this last parable about the net being thrown into the sea. We've already been introduced to this, and this is that at the end of the age, that the kingdom has come and it is coming. And in the meantime, there is this patience of growth. There is this growth of the kingdom. There is a, there is a grace of God that desires that all might come and find shelter in the gospel of Jesus. That all might come to know Jesus as their treasure. At the same time, there is a day. There is an end to the stage in the coming of the kingdom. And there will be a day when the kingdom finally and fully when the king returns and takes his place visibly for all to see. In his first coming, Jesus came to be judged. At his second coming, Jesus the king will come as judge. And then there will be a gathering, it says, and there will be a separation. And the righteous, the righteous are those who, not because of what they've done in this life, not because of what they've sacrificed, not because of what they've given up. They're righteous because they've put their trust, their faith, their confidence, their hope in what Jesus has done. Those are the righteous. And for anyone that hasn't, for those who have rejected the King, who've refused to receive to be received into the kingdom as a treasure. To know Jesus as their king, they'll face judgment. Jesus is always so clear and honest about that day coming. In the midst of his grace and love and deep desire for all men and women to know Him. He also is boldly clear about an end to come. So He finishes this teaching and then says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they turn to Him And they say, yes. I imagine they're kind of looking at each other, wondering which one of them is going to say no. It's kind of emotions on the floor. Someone has seconded it. All in favor say aye. No one wants to be the person that says nay. I think at some level they did understand the best they could. But they did not understand as they 
would. You know, this last parable, I couldn't help but think as Jesus speaks about the throwing the net into the sea and drawing up the fish, I couldn't help but think about Peter and his calling. When Jesus meets Peter in Luke chapter 5, he's walking along the side of the, he's walking along the beach at the Sea of Galilee, at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, at a place called Tagba. In fact, if you ever go to Israel with me, um, I'll take you right to that place. And he's walking along the sea, and Peter's out there fishing, and uh, he and um, Andrew, I think, are fishing. And they haven't caught anything all night. It's early, and they're coming in, and so Jesus is a carpenter. He's not a fisher. These are fishermen. He says, well, have you caught anything? He says, no, we haven't. Thanks for bringing it up. He says, why don't you throw your net out to the other side? So I don't know exactly why they do it, except there was something maybe authoritative in his voice or... Maybe they just thought it was, they were too tired to argue, so they throw the net out into the other side and fish fill the net to, to the point of the net breaking. Peter realizing he is in the presence of someone he, like he has never known before, someone who's whose word is authoritative. So he comes to the shore and he gives his life to Jesus. He leaves everything and follows him. He's found his treasure. In fact, you read through the Gospels and you see over and over again... Peter's goal in life is to be the one, maybe above everybody, that has left everything and follow him. Left everything, follow him. Make the sacrifice, follow him. Jesus, if you go to the cross, if they kill you, I'll be right there with you. I'll die with you. You're my treasure. I'll give up everything for you. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. But not like he would, right? Because it gets to the night of his arrest and his crucifixion, and Peter, after he has so bravely left everything, made every sacrifice to follow him, in fact, even said, if you die, I'll die with you. Ends up in the moment of truth, denying Jesus not just once, but three times. Times. In a moment of fear before a teenage girl by a charcoal fire. And listen, Peter is well aware of what he's done. Jesus will go to the cross, he will be crucified, he will die, he will be buried, and then resurrected. And Peter thinking that he has blown it. 
And so I said I'd follow him. I said I'd sacrifice everything. And, and here I didn't and I couldn't. Quits the mission. Goes back to fishing. And that's where you find John 21 open up with the resurrected Jesus walking along the shore again at Tagba calling out to the fishermen, have you caught anything? Throw your net over to the side. Throwing the net to the side, the net filling up with fish, and Peter realizing, oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he strips his clothes, and he jumps into the water, and he swims to the shore, and he falls on his face to worship. And Jesus restoring broken Peter Back to health. And Peter realizing, it is not my sacrifice that saves me. It's his sacrifice that saves me. It's his grace that loves me. It's not my love for him. It's his love for me. And that, that's the treasure. We love, we did not love, he loved us first, John will say. That's the treasure. Until that is secure in your heart, you'll have every other affection in this world competing for your attention. Until you see the worker and the merchant who has given up everything. For you. Let me ask you this morning, what's your treasure? What are you living for? Who possesses you? I invite you this morning to receive the one who gave up everything for you. To know the treasure of the grace and love of Jesus. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you.